I think we should live our faith. I don't think I have any game. I just have height. But I, I really took to entrepreneurship in a hurry. And my accountant said, well, your last two employers, I, I had run sales for them, are multimillionaires. You should try this for yourself. Here's my spiritual meaning. I want to create love. I want to create unity. Essentially, they're creating the spiritual virtues in their communities. Hello, welcome to the Dre and Smiley podcast, the podcast where ordinary people share with extraordinary lives, share their experiences, their journeys with you. All right. So on today's podcast, we have Steve Sarowitz, who is the founder of Velocity, a company he started with only three employees from a very small office space. That company has since grown into a multi-billion dollar company. Steve also founded a company called Blue Marble, which is an international payroll company. He's also founded a film and TV studio called Wayfair. When describing Steve, some may use the, uh, the B word. And Steve, the B word I'm referring to is basketball player or baller. To protect the innocent, Steve, to protect the innocent, I was told the word on the street is you're a hooper. I won't, I won't embarrass the person uh, by detailing their name, but uh, to give you a, a, a clue who I'm referring to, um, he has a beautiful family, uh, 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 four beautiful kids. Uh, I understand you were hooping at his house. and uh, Yeah, and I, and I understand you, uh, you, you have game. Tell, t- tell me about your game, Steve. Well, if this is the person yeah. I'm thinking of, he was told by another very short Jewish friend uh, most Jews are not yeah. very tall, that, uh, that he had a friend to introduce him to. So he said, have him come down here and play basketball. And, I said, and, and so I came down there, and his uh, recollection of meeting me for the first time is like this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm almost a foot okay. taller than him. I'm six foot. So I don't know if – I don't think I have any game. I just okay. have height. Okay. So it was – it was ugly. I won't tell you who won, but I'll tell you every game I play is ugly. <laughs> okay. Well, the result is what matters, right? It doesn't matter how it looks as long as you get the results. <laughs> good, That's true. good stuff. That's good true. stuff. So, yeah, so let's talk about you, Steve, in terms of your business uh, savvy, right? So take us back to where it began. Was Pelocity your first business, and where did you get the idea? So, um, and pardon me if I'm dripping a little bit. I, I'm also a runner. I've been running since I was 12, so that's now 45 oh, I, years. I was, I was so thinking we were I'm making not... you nervous. I'm glad you said that. Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I, I figured I had enough time, but I guess I'm getting old, so I, I need another five or 10 minutes <laughs> to good. recover. All right. I ran three miles in a little under 22 not minutes bad. a day, so I'm, I'm doing okay. Um, so, so, uh, I started off in college, and I was, uh, I was an engineering major, and I almost failed out of engineering, went into economics, and my roommate was in this thing called uh, business, what is it? Business, venture, business Venture Network, I think, and uh, it was, uh, see, my memory's failing me, too, being old, uh, and it was uh, an entrepreneur's club at college, and he said, you want to go to a meeting? I said, sure, what the heck, and I went, and the, the president was an attractive blonde woman, and I said, okay, that's good enough for me. I'll, I'll join this club because, you know, I, that was the extent of my deep thinking in those days. But I, I really took to entrepreneurship 
in a hurry. I did a food fair after my junior year in college. That was my first venture along with the painting business. I was so bad, our first customer actually paid me. They paid us to leave his house because we were dripping paint all over it. Um, but we got better after it, and we, we, we did okay the first year with painting. I did really well with the food fair, and that was my start. I kind of got the bug, and ever since then, I've considered myself an entrepreneur. Uh, after college, I didn't get a job. My parents gave me $1,000, and I called them up six months later. And I said, well, I've, I've blown through your $1,000 and $1,500 more which was a lot of money to me back in those days. And can you lend me some more money and I'll come home and get a job? And they agreed to do that. And that's how I started working for the first time. I started being, I started as a salesperson. My third sales job was at a, a company called Robert F. White, which was a payroll company. And that started me in the payroll industry. Um, little did I know I would be so successful in the payroll industry. It was just a sales job to me. I worked for a few companies and the, by 1994, I'd worked for two consecutive companies. 1996, I'd worked for two uh, consecutive companies that had sold out to a company called Paychex. And my accountant said, well, your last two employers, I, I had run sales for them, are multimillionaires. You should try this for yourself. And so I did. So it wasn't a, much, it wasn't a, a real big plan. It wasn't planning to rule the universe. I just wanted to make a good living for my family. And uh, that's what I did. I I, I, my background is enterprise software, I enterprise resource planning, and I was fascinated when I read that there was three of you and you just taught yourself how to code to make your application. So I saw that online, and I, how how was that, or did you, or was that accurate that you just taught yourself how to write Java or RPG three or whatever it was? So I didn't write the application. We licensed an application, but that application allowed us to do custom programming. And so I taught myself over time how to code. And first I started with custom reports and some custom processes, uh, some objects to help clients do custom things. And I was doing so many. And then I started doing custom things for all clients. And by the time I was done customizing the product, we actually had more objects that I'd written than the software providers. And at that point, we were getting fairly large. I said to the software providers, we would like source code to keep going because we're getting too big. We need customization. And we just we need to have some assurance that you're going to be around in case anything happens to you. And they said no. And so we started writing our own product. So I wrote the prototype for the engine, but I didn't actually write the engine. So I, I wrote it in SQL. I could write VB in SQL. I don't consider myself a professional coder. But what I would do is I would go and I'd sell during the day. I, I didn't hire a salesperson for two years. I just did it all myself. And then at night, I would do the coding. I'd make all the I'd, I'd actually make all the things I promised come true. And sometimes I'd curse out the salesperson uh, while I was doing that. Because <laughs> I'm in sales, so what we do, I tell them, I say, well, we write the checks, but you guys on support got to cash it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Well, I had to do both. <laughs> you had to do both. All right. Now, that makes sense. So I remember back in the day where we used to take the source code and some of the companies we store it in it one of these repositories because they was concerned that if we went out of business, we were literally out there in Lyle, Illinois was our headquarters. So I was in the Chicago area a lot with our ERP software, but no, I, I thought that was awesome. And um, so do you, we were looking at it, you went from, from the food business to painting to payroll processing and into movies. Uh, during that journey, which ones would you say is the most uh, rewarding? Not financially, because I can tell that's philosophy, but just the most like creative, inspiring reward 
when looking at the food, the paint, the payosity, and now the, the movie creations? They're all rewarding in their own way. The most creative is definitely the movies. Um, I'm enjoying the movie business. Uh, we are, Wayfair is making a movie called It Ends With Us, which is based on the best-selling book from last year. It's actually, I think Colleen Hoover, I, I just counted yesterday, she has six of the top ten New York best New York Times bestsellers. Six of them are written by her. Uh, and uh, I think uh, number two is It Ends With Us. Depending on which list it is, either number two or three. And, and number one is it, it starts with us, which is the sequel. Interesting, interesting. So coming back just a bit, so you started with Paylocity in terms of getting into to, to payroll. Uh, I understand the journey and how you got into starting that business. I know it's been uh, pretty successful for you. After you stepped down as the CEO of Paylocity, at some point you started another. That's a story, by the way. I That's can it. tell you about that. So um, I hired Steve Beauchamp um, in 2007 to be president. I, I was all stressed out. I was not a very good manager. My, uh, my management style was get out of my way, I'll finish it. You don't know what you're doing. Uh, I apologize to anyone I managed. I, I, I was starting to get better, but I, I really, I was too hands-on. I didn't know how to delegate. And because of that, I was physically stressed and uh, mentally stressed. I was really getting sick. I was about 40 years old and my body was breaking down. And I had some digestive issues I didn't know at the time. So I, um, had, I since have changed my diet, which has helped tremendously. But um, I called up Steve and I said, Steve, I, I, I need to get a COO for my company. It's just that's too much for me. He said, well, I'd only be president. I said, I meant president. And I said, by the way, you're my only candidate. And he was working at Paychex doing very well. And somehow I convinced him to come work at Paylocity. And so he was president. I was CEO. And after a few years, he turned to me and said, I'm CEO now. And I said, well, but I'm CEO. What do I do? He says, well, figure out a title. It doesn't matter. I'm already the CEO. I'm doing the CEO job. I'm running everything. And you're, you're terrible. He really said this to me. He said, you're a terrible CEO. No one would hire you as a CEO. And I'm the CEO. So figure it out. So I went to my friend and he said, well, do you still own the company? I said, yes because at the time I owned the majority of the company. And he said, well, he works for you anyway. doesn't matter what title. So I went with founder and chairman. And Steve is amazing. And by the way, he was right that, I, that, I mean, everything he said was correct. I, you know, it sounds funny, but I actually am not a good CEO. I'm getting better in my old age, but uh, I'm nowhere near that. I will never be as good a CEO as Steve Beauchamp. So I stepped down as CEO and Steve became uh, CEO. And, and when it's time for him to replace me as chairman, he'll say pretty much the same thing. <laughs> so tell me this, Steve. So I think it's tough for anyone to admit their flaws or weaknesses, especially when they're in the midst of great success, right? Where does that come from? Your ability to recognize, I'm not as good at this as I think I am, and, and be able to step down. I think some of it is in my faith. I'm, I'm a very passionate Baha'i, and I realize that we're all human and we have our failings, and, and the faith says to look at our flaws before we look at anyone else's. So that gives me plenty of time every day to look at my flaws before I get to anyone else. Don't have much time for that. Um, I think, uh, I guess, really, just having a, a tad, enough, enough grip of reality to see that Steve was so much better than me. It's like playing basketball with Michael Jordan. You know, you can get on the court and try to shoot, and then you watch him, and you're like, okay, I'm just not, you know, he's just that good. He's just that good. And maybe it's years of looking back now you know, after watching him run the company and realize how good he is. He's done Excellent. a great job. Excellent. Okay, so then let's go on to Wayfair. So you, you made the transition from being the CEO of Pelocity to becoming founder and chairman, uh, taking on that role. How long before you started 
the inter, the international uh, is it Blue Marble? I believe it's called. I started Blue Marble um, before Paylocity okay. went public. So Steve and I were talking. I was 46 years old. I said to Steve, I'm kind of bored. You've taken over all my duties. You're doing them better than me. I don't have anything to do, so I can either retire or maybe I'll start another company. He said, well, there's nobody really doing global payroll well. Why don't you do that? And so I started Blue Marble. And, and so I ran it for five years, and I think it, it was in the end of 2017, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Yeah, I've been around for five years and I'd managed to have a company that had done a million and a half in revenue and had $6 million in expenses wow. that year. And Steve looked at me and said, why are you doing this? You don't need to do this. You don't need the money. You don't need the hassle. This thing's a dead end. It's never going to go anywhere. Um, and this is a matter of public record, so I can say the next thing. I sold that company last year to, to, to Steve Beauchamp, the guy who told me to shut it down for $60 okay. million. Dollars. So um, <laughs> it's Blue Marble took off from that point okay, forward. So do you still have a I, role in Blue Marble? Okay. I don't. It's completely run by pay, Paylocity. I really had started it to sell it to Paylocity right from the beginning. I was hoping they'd buy it because, again, they the, the internet they have clients who need international payroll. So we built the software that um, they can go into one interface and pay their people in, in, in over 80. It's actually over 100 different countries. So they can go in England or, or the UK. Or they can go in Germany. They can go in Ethiopia. And they can pay their employees from that, and then get then get combined reporting, which is really valuable to mid market companies. So, so are these companies, these software companies, software as a service? Are they SaaS companies? Or are they? they yes, absolutely. Under? No, they're they're totally definitely SaaS. SaaS. Everything. Wow. Yes, SaaS. I, I was the one. The biggest innovation I had at Paylocity is I went into SaaS very early. People told me you still need an on premise product. I went all in on SaaS as soon as we built. I could see where it was going. Wow. That's cool, and no, that's that's awesome. I'm I'm gonna switch gears a little bit because I was doing my research on you, and I saw that you have two dogs, and I wanted to know how did the dogs get along with Duchess? Um, they haven't eaten her yet. That's good. <laughs> Is it a big turtle or a, when I was a kid, we had turtles, and they were little tiny things like gerbils. But then I was thinking the dogs. It's a big, pretty big turtle. Do they play with it or? Oh, no, no, they, they don't interact at all. The dogs, though, are interesting. Uh, I have two dogs. I have a St. Bernard, and my second dog is a, a Jack Russell Terrier, and they think they're brother and sister. So the Jack Russell will actually lick the St. Bernard's eyes and ears to clean them off. She's a, she's a girl and he's a boy. So she, she takes care of them like a sister would take care of a brother. No, that's cool. I thought that was – I was just wondering, where did the turtle come in? It's like, oh, I got two dogs and a cat or – I got two dogs and a hamster, and I was like a turtle. That's the turtle showed up one day when my mother-in-law bought the kids a turtle, and you know she bought it for like twenty-five, thirty dollars, and then it cost about two thousand dollars to get the turtle back to health because we found out it was a sick turtle. <laughs> Very turtle. I know. Well, I have an interesting fun fact. Uh, my brother, he's uh, two years older than I am. I'm fifty-six, and when we were kids, I don't know what we were arguing about, but I had a turtle, and he had a turtle. So he wanted to test my turtle out in the toilet, and we watched it go down. And, and I was traumatized because he flushed my turtle, and then he wouldn't do his turtle after he flushed my turtle. <laughs> it's like, I think we were five and seven. And I'm like, dude, he took away my turtle. <laughs> that is a typical brother thing to do. Um, that's how, that's, to this day, that's how my, my twins, and that's how my, my boy treats my girl. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> that's hilarious. Well, no, one other thing to follow up from there. Thanks for answering, answering about the turtles. But 
I also saw that you have a foundation, and your foundation is two foundations, and that's amazing in the sense that I, I, I like that your purpose was a, or you mentioned that, what is your spiritual purpose? And that's how you start to decide whether you donate or, or pledge any money to their organization. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I thought that was an interesting, not interesting, that was a nice theme uh, for finding out who to invest in. I think we should live our faith. And so if we live our faith, it, it infuses everything we do. So, for example, if you're a Christian and, and Jesus Christ says to love your neighbor, then we should probably try that. And, you know, so many Christians in the name of Jesus Christ forget that maybe everyone's their neighbor. You know, my neighbor only on my right hand side or my neighbor of a certain color or my neighbor of a certain religion. That's not what Jesus Christ said at all. He said, love your neighbor and even love your enemy. And the same thing with the Baha'i faith. It's about the unification of humanity. So it's all about the oneness of humanity. It's, it's a, probably a more... Uh, it's a more advanced version of love thy neighbor. It's in a, a lot more detail. And so I want to spread those principles of the oneness of race, the, um, the equality of women and men, the uh, oneness of nation, the oneness of religion. So get rid of all these things that separate us. And so we, we look for organizations that not only intellectually are try and materially are trying to make the world a better place, but spiritually, because we think it's a combination of the two. If you only look at material solutions, I'll give you a great story of only looking at material solutions. So one of my friends, uh, who's also a Baha'i, Rain Wilson, told me this story. And he does work in Haiti. And these very well-meaning philanthropists came in, and they came with a great material solution, which is that they were going to buy T-shirts or take old American T-shirts and give it to Haiti. And they did, and it was great. And they had T-shirts for free, and it was wonderful, except that they ruined the Haitian uh, clothing industry. They were, they were making their own clothes and they destroyed that because now everyone had free clothes. So they didn't really look at what they needed. You, so part of being doing a spiritual solution is asking communities what they need, working in communities and with communities as a partner rather than coming top down and saying, hey, we're going to do this for you. And I've done that you know, in, in my early years of philanthropy. And, and I, now I'm very careful to say, what do you need? And then is this solution a spiritual solution? So uh, give you an example. We just um, we just turned somebody down who had a request, and one of the things I won't touch is cannabis. And I am uh, I am a we're actually making a movie about this, but I've done a lot of research on this, and unfortunately, it's it's affected people in my family and people I know. But cannabis is a very dangerous substance, much more dangerous than people realize. Every four minutes, a young person has a psychotic break because of cannabis, and it disproportionately affects poor communities and, and communities of color. Everything does. I mean, honestly, that's, and so I'm, that's one of my big reasons I'm, I'm against cannabis. And so we had a community of color, a group that was, um, we really liked in many ways, but one of their big things was they, they wanted to put cannabis in their community and they wanted to even out. So, you know, basically people of color can own cannabis dispensaries, which on the face of it sounds great. But to me, that's actually a negative because it actually is hurting the community. And so I'm looking at my spiritual principles and saying, does you know, what does this do? And does this actually help the community? And does it raise the spirits? It may sound good, but then I apply the spiritual principles. And in this case, some of the material principles and say, this is actually going to materially hurt the community, even though it sounds good. Um, we, we are very, very particular in, in certain ways. We, we, people need to actually tell us what their spiritual purpose is. Now, I saw that and I thought that was interesting. But as a follow-up from your... You're a runner, you're a movie maker, 
you started companies, and now you're a philanthropist. Out of the most challenging, just say, say, what would you rank as the top two most challenging? Is it giving away money or giving away, not giving away, investing as a philanthropist? Because as you dig into the root cause of, like you said, sometimes it's just not the material, it's not the money, it's the spiritual side. Or when you're looking at building a company, it's not the HR side, it's the getting the product done or delivering what you promised. So what is the most challenging from your perspective during your journey? The philanthropy, the CEO, the starting the company, the paint dripping on your your prospect's floor? <laughs> I think it's easier to make money than to give it away. Bill Gates said that, and I agree with yeah. him. Um, to give it away properly. It's really easy. A lot of philanthropists, the reason why they do this, I think, is because it's much easier. You see, you, you know, you, have, you go to a hospital and you see everyone's name on this wing or that wing or university. Universities are, are chock full of buildings and maybe someday I'll have a building in a university. So, I mean, that's not a bad thing. But the hard thing is to get into and get to the real societal problems. And, you know, in, in our society in America, it's racism, it's sexism, and get into these things in a deep level and get into communities and go into communities. That we, we do a lot of work in the Native American community and, and you know, and the, and the African-American community, and, and, it's, and both communities have trauma. So you go in there, um, and first of all, you have to duck because people are punching at you, not because you did anything, but because there's trauma. I come from a, a Jewish background, and there's trauma in the Jewish community from the Holocaust. I lost 20 members of my family in the Holocaust. And, and don't think that doesn't hurt a family. There's anger there. My dad was angry. I grew up with an angry father who had lost a lot. Of his, he lost essentially his father when his father lost all these relatives. And, and so you have these losses, these angers, these, these PTSD. I, I don't know if you ever heard of Joy DeGru and her work, Post-Traumatic uh, Slave Syndrome. But really wonderful. She she she's a, a professor and a scientist, and she she scientifically proves that in in people's DNA and in in their culture are these traces of the the damage that's been done. And by the way, when in my opinion, slavery racism cuts two ways. It's on everybody. It's on the aggressor. It's same thing with the things like the Holocaust. It's on the person who has been persecuted and the persecutor and it comes down multiple generations. And so we're working through these things. That's the hard work. But it's also the rewarding sure, work. Sure. You know what, Steve, something that stands out to me, this is the first time we've actually met, is your passion, right, for making a change, making a difference. And to me, it, it, it clearly comes from, at least in part, from your faith, being a Baha'i. So to that end, going back to your two foundations, so uh, actually, before we talked about the foundations, Wayfair. So Paylocity, Blue Marble, and then you went on to Wayfair. So tell me how, where that idea came from to start a TV and movie studio, and tell me what Wayfair is all about. What, what, do, you, what do you do at Wayfair that's different from the typical movie studio? We're very different than the typical movie studio. You can ask our employees. They'll tell you much more boldly than I will. But I'll go back to 2004. 14. My company goes public, um, and I um, and I uh, called up a man named Bill Strickland uh, to build a center called Shy Cat uh, in Chicago. And about the fifth conversation, uh, he tells me he wants to build a center in Akko, Israel, called uh, which is now called ACAT, and that's that's actually Mecca for Baha'is. 
So I, at that time, had wanted to become a Baha'i, but my wife, who's Catholic, had told me I had to wait till after my kid's bar mitzvah. So I go to Baha'i Mecca in September 2014, and uh, within six months, I, I just had a total spiritual transformation. Within six months, I'm a Baha'i. February 2015, three days after I declared as a Baha'i, I email my friend Farshid, who's also in the payroll business, and I say, Farshid, I'm a Baha'i now, and I'm so excited. And I, I, I took a picture of me declaring as a Baha'i, which just says you sign a piece of paper that says you believe in Baha'u'llah. Um, and right behind me was a picture of 90, a painting of 99 martyrs who'd been killed in, by this government, the same government that's frankly starting to lose power today with the revolution going on in, in Iran. Um, I don't know if people are calling it a revolution yet, but uh, it seems like it might be. We, we, by the way, we Baha'is don't talk about, like, we don't advocate for change, any government change. We don't talk against any government. I'm just kind of saying what I see. Mm. Um, but um, anyway, so 99 Baha'is have been killed. Right behind me was Farshid's father. It was a painting of his father. And I, I emailed Farshid and said, I'm a Baha'i now. I just want to quit all my entrepreneurship, and I'm just going to teach the Baha'i faith. Because I didn't need any money, and he knew that. He said, well, you could do that and reach hundreds of people. Or you could make a movie and reach millions of people. Less than an hour later, I get an email from a movie producer by the name of Peter Samuelson, who I've since become friends with. It wasn't about movies. It was about philanthropy, helping foster kids, which we ended up doing, which we still do. And within a week, I'm sitting with Peter at a place in uh, Santa Monica, where we actually have a house today, and uh, talking about philanthropy. And uh, he... Um, he says to me, uh, I, I said to him, well, what about this movie? He said, sure. And I actually, we ended up having a four-way conversation with the table next to us. And uh, I, that started me on a three-year odyssey to make a movie called The Gate, Dawn of the Baha'i Faith, which is now shown all over the world. Um, and it showed on ABC twice all around the country. Millions of people have seen it. Uh, it's, it's not the best-known movie, but it's probably, the, it actually probably, after out of everything in my life I'm most proud of, it's that movie. Uh, the Gate, The Dawn of the Faith, The Baha'i Faith, because it's the first major movie that's been seen that much about the faith. Um, and along the way, I met Justin Baldoni. He had this little company called Wayfair Entertainment. And he, I said to him, he was very helpful to me, very generous with his time, as was Rain Wilson. And as were many, many Baha'i scholars. I mentioned Joy DeGruy, and uh, there's another scholar by the name of Nader Saidi. Too many to mention, but... So many Baha'is were very kind to me. Justin was one of them. And I said to Justin, uh, if you ever need help with business, that's my forte. I'll be happy to help you. And even though I'd sworn off business at the time. And um, he said, well, he came to me a few months later and said, I'm trying to raise a million dollars for my little company. And I said, well, Justin, and I had gotten to know Justin a little bit. I said, Justin, I'm not going to help you with that. I want to become your business partner. And then he started asking me questions because he didn't know me that well. And he didn't want to be partners with just anybody. And we had a, a very nice talk and we became business partners. And I want to say, you know, I always say this, I say this publicly, privately. I just love Justin Baldoni. I think he is an amazing human being, amazing young man. He's 19 years younger than me. But he's, um, he is just a, a very talented filmmaker, a very talented director and actor. 
uh, but moreover, just a really great guy. And, a, and I'm so happy to be his business partner, whether we are successful or not. I certainly hope to be successful. And so that was the genesis of Wayfair Studios. And what makes our studio different is we are in it, number one, to make the world a better place. That is our, that is our reason for being, to get these Baha'i principles of unity, to, to get the nobility of every human being out there. And it's really to, to change hearts. It's not so much... Uh, for us to uh, to make money and make and, you know and, and do superhero movies, whatever brings the most people to the theater, it's to like for example, it ends with us is about a woman who's abused, who's getting out of this abusive relationship. So it's really in support of women and equality of women and 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 and, and women's rights. Um, another movie we're doing is with Rain Wilson, Code Three, and that's about uh, paramedics and how they're underpaid and overworked and it's kind of a everyman hero story but it's showing this guy who's middle-aged and, and not particularly successful and yet he's a hero just for doing his job every day and then um we did a movie called the senior which is about ageism about a 59 year old man who makes his college football team that movie's pretty much done now uh racist trees which is about trees in palm springs and how they divided a town so every movie we have has a purpose and then the second piece of what we do is we're behind inspired Every person, every team member knows that. And most of the people are not Baha'is. And, and they know that we don't have, they don't have to be Baha'is. But what they have to do is share our values. So we have a lot of love and unity. And we do consultation when we make decisions. We try. We have a lot of diversity. That's a big Baha'i value. Um, and so all of these things are, are really in the whole DNA of Wayfair. Hollywood is known as a cutthroat, and you probably know this, Hollywood is known as a pretty cutthroat place. Our goal is to be honest, absolute honesty in everything we do. When you do a deal with Wayfair, we, we do what we say we're going to do. How do you guys do. find your scripts? Uh, we, they come to us. Uh, Rain brought uh, Code 3 to us. Uh, Justin licensed. Uh, he optioned. Uh, it ends with us way before it was as big as it is today. Um, Racist Trees was brought to us. So each one is brought to us. Our biggest property we have is, and we're working on a script right now, is uh, Pac-Man, live-action Pac-Man movie. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. So then let's go on to um, your, well, let's look at your shirt. What does your shirt say? I saw Unity on there. What does the rest of it say? Uh, so powerful is the light of unity that can illuminate the whole earth. Yeah, I like wow. it, I like it. Same by that, so that's that's Wayfair in, in a nutshell. Yeah, high inspired, I love it. Um, so also, you have two foundations. So talk to us briefly about the two foundations. What's the difference between the two? Um, and then we're going to move on to our final four questions for you. So um, the first foundation is Julian Grace, and that's what my wife has built. Julian Grace, my wife Jessica, and I've built it with her. I would say that. Um, she uh, she's really done the most of the lifting, heavy lifting. We just had hired a new executive director. We had a wonderful executive director by the name of Allison Lopez. Our, our new director is Scott McClellan. Um, so he um, he's just starting with us. Uh, most of what we do is, is BIPOC. Uh, we actually made a determination right in the George Floyd era that everything we would do would be BIPOC, and we did that. Um, and then what, we, what I mean by that is BIPOC-led, BIPOC-serving. Um, we've since backed down from that a little bit, but not much. The great majority of what we're going to do, and, and always have done, actually, before that, has always been 
communities of color. And the reason I, I say it this way, and my wife would, might say it differently. My wife, by the way, is also a person of color. She's Honduran, so she would call herself Afro-Caribbean. Um, so I'm, I'm the white one in my family. I get teased for that. I, you know, fathers get teased and I get teased for a lot of things. My Spanish isn't very good and I, and I, my skin is too light. So, um, the kids will teach you about anything, but I'm, I'm very, um, my, my attitude is simply this, and this is really coming from the Baha'i writings. We are all flowers in one garden, all of us, and, and we're all just different colored flowers and the rain and the sun should hit all of us equally. And if some of the flowers have been denied equal amounts of rain, it's my job as someone who has a little extra water to, to provide that. It's, it's to make the world more equitable, more fair, and to help, in my opinion, uh, you know, wherever possible, teach someone to fish versus giving them a fish. Um, give them the opportunity to, to learn how to fish. In other words, come as a partner and a friend to communities that haven't had partners and friends because I have resources that God has given me to share those with those most in need of those resources with the understanding that they have the capacity. It's not me coming in as a, as a, as a rescuer, but me coming in as a friend to say, here, I've got, we've got a pie. I've got seven pieces. You've got one or none. Take one of mine and we'll eat together. So Wayfair, uh, few years ago, uh, I had all these people, Baha'is, coming to me and saying, can you help me with this? And, you, and I had no way to vet them. So I went to my wife and said, can I hire this woman, Laura Herrick, part-time just to vet my Baha'i stuff? And she said, okay. And Laura, then we ended up giving away a million dollars my first year. Uh, it was $4 million a second year. It would be a little shy of $10 million this year. Our goal was nine, so we, we overshot the mark. Next year, we're going for $19 million. And Laura has... Um, everyone who meets Laura says the same thing. It's like a, she should just change her name to Amazing. Uh, she's done a great job. She's built a, a diverse team. Um, she's literally from nothing willed this foundation, this Baha'i-inspired foundation into existence. And she's amazing at her job. And so she's got a lot of very experienced people working with her now. We're, we're going to have a staff of 13 by next year, which is actually very lean for what we're giving away. And um, all of it is to companies or to, to uh, nonprofits that have a spiritual meaning. So, you know, they, they, can, they can tell us, here's my spiritual meaning. I want to create love. I want to create unity. Essentially, they're creating the spiritual virtues in their communities. Like Julian Grace, it's all, almost all, uh, it's, it's the great majority is BIPOC. Great majority is in the United States and the great majority is communities of color. Love it. Love it. So, so it sounds like although you have Laura, it is Laura, right, at the helm, you yeah. also have a part to play in terms of approving, having the final approval of the funds that go out? Yes, I, I'm, I have a board of three. Justin and uh, another friend named Cynthia Barnes-Slater, who actually introduced me to Laura. Um, all, um, all four of us are Baha'is. Great. So there's a huge, so what's wonderful about me working with, and all, I would say with Wayfair, there's three main players at the top. There's Jamie, who's our president, who's a Baha'i, and Justin and me. And then on the foundation, uh, there's the four of us, uh, Laura. And, and, and our staff is actually mostly not Baha'i, but everyone knows. And the same thing, just like with the, the, the studio, most people are not Baha'i, but we work with the and, and we don't necessarily give to only Baha'i organizations. But the Baha'i principles are in everything we do. Great, great. So here's, here's um, one question before we go to the final four. Steve, what's one thing we didn't ask you about that we should have? 
What's the dumbest thing you've ever done? <laughs> that would be- oh, that's coming. That's coming. Don't worry. That's part of my final four. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. Yeah. So is there, is there anything, like any nugget you want to share before we get to the final four that, that we can give you an opportunity to, uh, to share with us? Um, what's the most important thing? What's your most important yeah. goal? And, and how well, to get there. Let's talk about it. What is your most important goal? World mm-hmm. peace. That's what Wayfair Foundation is, is doing, is world peace. So, you know, we tell people we have a foundation to create world peace, everything we do. And a lot of world peace is getting these principles that I talked about out there and, and particularly investing in youth. Um, I think youth education, especially early youth education, early childhood education and youth education and, and, and programs, that's where it starts. I think if imagine a world, let me just ask you kind of rhetorically, imagine a world where every child is taught love and kindness and mercy and compassion and truth and justice in a deep manner, all the spiritual virtues by the age of five. Yeah, mind-blowing. What would that world be like? Yeah, We could do that. We could do that today. If we did that today, there there would be no Russia invading Ukraine. There would be no um, Iranian government shooting their own citizens in the streets because they're taking off their hijabs. Yeah. Religion aside, you know, I don't, you know, people, if they want to wear a hijab, that's fine. But I, it's not okay to shoot someone in the street. Right, right. And, and you touch on something that's, that's key there, which is from birth, right? There's an option to teach your children these principles of love and kindness and generosity. And when, the, when, those, when that option doesn't exist, we have what you just described. You know, the types of things we're seeing across the globe. And it's everywhere. It's everywhere. You know, so in my in my hometown of Highland Park, uh, we had 50 people shot on July 4th. And you know, here's a young man who, somewhere along the way, wasn't taught right. these things. Right. His father was just arrested, actually, for buying him the gun. And, and then what's worse, Steve, and you just mentioned that the fact that his dad bought the gun <clears> is when these children are taught the polar opposite in terms of you know how to hate, who to hate, things like that. So yeah, so that's 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 important. That's that's a uh, that's a great goal to have, and leveraging your foundation and your resources to achieve world peace. Um, I love it. I love it. Okay, Kev, it's on you. All right. So this is the final four. So this is where we just ask questions, and they're they're just out there. And so the first final four, Steve, is if you were to have a dinner, and there's only four of you at the dinner. Who would be the other three representatives you could invite to your dinner table, alive or dead, that you would want to have dinner with, and why? Abdul Baha. Abdul Baha. Shoghi Effendi. I don't know if I if I'd have enough guts to have dinner with Baha'u'llah. Um, there you go. Abdul Baha, Shogi Effendi. I don't know. Just those. And why? Um, that, Abdul Baha. Um, most people don't know. Have you ever heard of Abdul Baha? Yeah, I'm a Baha'i, so. Okay. I'm not. I haven't. No okay, so Abdul Baha. Um, have you ever heard of the book The Prophet by Khalil Gibran? I think I've heard Andre or Andre and our mutual friend mention it once or twice. So the prophet is far better known in mo- by most people than Abdul Baha, but Abdul Baha is what the book was based on. He's the person. So the guy who wrote it, Khalil Gibran, in 1912 painted Abdul Baha's portrait, 
about a prophet who comes from the um, comes from the east as a prisoner. He's, he's, he's released as a prisoner of the Ottoman Empire, and that was exactly Abdu'l-Bahá. Abdu'l-Bahá was the son of Baha'u'lláh, and he is just, every word to me that he's ever written or spoken to me is like gold. It's like pure gold, and I, you know, I literally every day, and Andre knows this because we do the same thing every day. We wake up every day, I think, I won't put words in your mouth, but I think we do this. Wake up every day, try to be like Abdu'l-Bahá, he's our exemplar, fail, and then we try again the next day. That's what I do anyway. But he's my exemplar. It's literally what Baha'u'llah said. He's your exemplar. Be like him. And there's even a song, like, Be Like Me. Um, and he was like, he's like, he was Christ-like. And so, you know, for a Christian to be Christ-like, for uh, Baha'is to be like Abdu'l-Bahá, it's the same thing. Uh, Shoghi Effendi was his grandson. And Shoghi Effendi was the last um, singular leader of the Baha'i faith. And he did as much in a day as somebody like me would do in a month with this, you know, and that was only when he was sleeping. Um, <laughs> books he created. You know, if you go and see what Shoghi, crea Shoghi Effendi created in Israel, uh, the, the Baha'i gardens there and the, and the, the amazing shrines, uh, it, it's just, it's otherworldly. You can't, I cannot describe it. I tried to describe it to my friends. I have some uh, newer Baha'is who I took there um, earlier this year. And, I, I tried to describe it to him, and afterwards I said, you know, I, I told them I couldn't describe it, and now they, after they saw it, they said, I understand now. I didn't understand before. I just, you have to go see it. They're, and then they're building another shrine to Abdu'l-Bahá. Shoghi Effendi, um, he just, he just, he, he spread this faith to many, many countries. He ran the faith single-handedly. He did the work of 10 people. And I'm in just in awe of Shoghi Effendi, and his writing is amazing. And the things he, he predicted the inter internet, I think in the early 1930s, he actually predicted the internet. He said there's going to be this worldwide system of communication where we can instantly communicate. He, he, he just, just to listen to Shoghi Effendi for a day, for, for an hour, would be amazing to me. Either, to be honest, either Abdul Baha or Shoghi Effendi singularly, if I could ever get their presence, that would be great. I love it. I love awesome. It. Thank you for that yeah. answer. So um, as, I, as I think about that answer, and usually we don't provide commentary, but I have to. But I, I wonder if I'd be afraid that my head would explode from all of the information that would be shared with me. I, I don't know if I could. I'd love, to, I'd love to be invited to that dinner. I just don't know if I'd be able to handle all of the, you know what I mean? Well, the, the thing is, I know if Abdul Baha turned it up to the Abdul Baha notch, where like he like where he was, right. of course your head would explode sure. because sure. you couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle right. it. But Abdul Baha would be gracious and kind and speak to my dumb level. it down. Yeah, speak to my level. Yeah, he would dumb yeah. it down for, for us sure, right? for sure. Okay, so the next question is, um, what has been your greatest success, professionally or personally? Well, there's always children. You know, I have I have two amazing children. I have a daughter who's a full foundation member at the at the age of 19. She was just helping us interview our new. Uh, she just turned 20 uh, this week, but she uh, she was helping interview our new uh, head of our foundation. So for a 19 year old to be in those interviews is kind of, and to and to deserve to be there is pretty amazing. She's a student at Northwestern. Uh, my son is at SDSU. So always parents are proud of their kids. Um, you know, Paylocity is my biggest financial success, but. Um, I think when people write about me, if they ever write about me, if they ever care, um, 
I think I'll be called the producer of the gate. I think that's I think that's what they'll say. I I was one of the, I I was the producer of one of the first seminal Baha'i movies, and the Baha'i faith is in my mind the most important thing in the world today for everybody. Most people don't realize it yet, but I think you know when we look at this, this will, this will be called the Baha'i era, and the ideas of Baha'u'llah will spread all around the world. And the fact that I helped do that. Pretty much from a position of ignorance, actually, because I'd been a Baha'i three days when I started. I'd never made a movie, and I really think I was just graced by God with the opportunity to do that. And I'm I'm thankful every day that I could. Wow, that's a nice segue to the third question. Is um, so, in light of that, what is your superpower? If you know Superman can fly, the Hulk has strength. What is Steve Schwartz's superpower? I'm an entrepreneur. I'm, I'm, I'm dumb and I'm too dumb to realize what I can't do. <laughs> Entrepreneurism is your superpower. So, yeah. All right. So it sounds like you're a, uh, you know, just addicted to starting businesses. This isn't the last you know, question, but so let me ask you, what is the next business that you're going to start? I've already just started it. It's called Wayfarer, Wayfarer um, Theaters. We're opening our first theater in Highland Park. Uh, we're taking over a theater, uh, which is the landmark Renaissance place. We're taking it over as of February 1st. And uh, we're, uh, we're gonna, it'll be the first, maybe the only, if it doesn't succeed, but hopefully the first of many Wayfair theaters. My attitude on the theater business is people are looking at it all wrong. You put, theater, you know, put movies on the screen and you're trying to pull people in. I, I think the idea is you make it a community center that shows movies and you ingrain yourself deeply, in, like I do in philanthropy, deeply in the community. You talk to everyone in the community. What, what movies do you want to see? And I do, I do want to do a lot of children's programming. I want to have children's classes there at the theater. There's a couple small theaters we can do this at where you're teaching those virtues every, every weekend and also showing positive films for kids, um, maybe some classics, and then having discussion groups and arts and crafts, but make it more than a movie, but an experience just, you know, kind of wrap your hands, basically spread love in the community. And I want to have an atmosphere there, which is, you know, when you walk in, you feel like you're walking into a community center that, by the way, it's so, that shows movies. And the movies we show, I want to have healthy food. I think movies, movies have terrible food. I want to have healthy food. I want to have healthy food, um, healthy, healthy, everything healthy for the mind, body, and soul. Almost like you're walking into one of those wellness centers, yoga and meditation. In fact, we might even have that, and but we also show movies, and the movies are to uplift people's souls. That's what movies should be for. Okay. Now, what they're for today, for the most part, I, I will actually won't go see. In fact, I watched a movie with my daughter last night. I won't say which one, but she said, "Oh, this is critically acclaimed." I'm like, "Oh, that's this is terrible." But all I can say is, a lot of people were dying. Like, yeah, it was, it was kind of a horror movie. I'm like, this is not something I want to put on my soul. Sure. Sure. Okay, so here's the last question. If your daughter came to you and said that um, she wants you to write a biography, an autobiography, what would you, what would the title of your autobiography be? What would the title be? Hmm. I hadn't really thought about it. A lucky man. Okay. I like it. Like it. Yeah. It's good. It's good. Oh, that's great. Well, well, Steve, we want to really thank you for taking out your time to uh, to speak with us. We really appreciate 
your your candor, your wisdom, your words, your your vision. And thank you again for for joining our our podcast. It's been awesome, Steve. I'm glad you had time to join us. It's my pleasure. And so to Andre Alaupa, Alaupa. to to Kevin's Merry Christmas. Um, and, and I would say that uh, it's always my pleasure to do something, and, and I really appreciate uh, this is a great way to start my morning.